Now, we are departing from our sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, and today we have a topical sermon on the subject of Christ's ascension. So that's the reason that uh, we are looking at Hebrews chapter 7. So please, could you keep your Bible open at that chapter, Hebrews chapter 7, and that can be found on page 1196, 1196. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, I will pray and I will ask God for his help as we study his word together. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the gospel of your Son, that in the fullness of time you sent him to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to suffer the penalty of that law, to be crucified under Pilate, but to rise from the dead, to be vindicated and to ascend into heaven, to be glorified in your presence forever. We pray that as we consider his glorious ascension, that you'd help us to understand uh, what it means for us, uh, that we might more clearly uh, believe in him uh, and acknowledge the wonderful things that you have done for us through him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, today in the liturgical calendar, we remember the ascension of our Lord, that is, the time after his death and resurrection, in which he visibly departed the earth, being taken away upon the clouds, and never seen again. And so I want to start by posing what should be an obvious question. Uh, We confess that Christ is God, that he died and was buried, that he was risen from the grave, and that forgiveness of sins and eternal life is found by believing in him. And we base our faith really upon his resurrection. Uh, We base our faith in part upon the eyewitness testimony of that resurrection. And as Paul tells us, if Christ was not indeed raised, then really our faith is futile and we of all people are the most to be pitied. Our meeting here is, well, frankly pathetic otherwise. So if our faith is based, at least in significant part, upon eyewitness testimony, if we believe that his tomb was found empty, if we believe that the stone was rolled away, if we believe that Jesus appeared to Mary, to his disciples, and to many others, then surely we must ask the question, wouldn't it have been a lot better, wouldn't it have been a lot easier for us if Jesus had just hung around, wouldn't that have been better? Wouldn't that provide much reassurance to us who have occasion to doubt if only we could see him again? Wouldn't that provide much needed comfort when times are hard, when we are facing suffering, to to see the reassurance that Christ is indeed risen? Wouldn't it provide us all with that confident hope that our future is not bleak after all? Well, brothers and sisters, I believe that the answer to that is that the ascension of Christ, instead of detracting from our assurance and comfort, is very greatly necessary for our comfort. And I hope that as we look at the implications of the ascension, we will see how it is far better for us 
that Christ is for a time no longer with us. So let us consider these things. Now the event of the ascension in itself is really quite simple. Uh, Luke records it for us twice, first at the end of his gospel, uh, which we just heard read to us, and then again at the beginning of Acts. And what is striking about those accounts is that for an event that really must have been quite spectacular, the descriptions of it are remarkably short. So, for example, in, in the gospel we have just heard, Luke says this, Jesus led his disciples out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. That's it. He was carried up into heaven. Nothing more. And so there is a danger for us here. Because Luke almost kind of, he almost trips over this event. It, it's just one sentence. It seems so insignificant. It seems just like a minor detail in his gospel. But we must not be confused. Although the description of that event is simple, it is short, it is succinct, the significance of that event is deeply profound. And in particular, the significance which I intend to show you, what I think the New Testament tells us, is what the ascension tells us about the present work of Christ, what it is that he is doing right now. And that means, first and foremost, one thing, that the ascension of our Lord does not mark the end, it does not mark the ceasing of his redeeming work. No, on the contrary, just as Christ himself has been exalted, so too has his work. For just as Christ in his earthly ministry discharged the office of a prophet, a priest, and a king, so too in his heavenly glory does he continue to execute those offices. And indeed, the work of each office, far from ceasing, is actually further empowered and is more glorified, and that for the great benefit of every one of us who are seated here, who believe in him. And so we shall consider just two of these offices, what the ascension means for the work of Christ as our king, and what the ascension means for the work of Christ as our priest. What it means for us, uh, his work as our king and as our priest. So let's just dive right in. His kingship. Here's the basic point. The ascension of Christ marks the public demonstration of his right to rule. It is the public demonstration of his right to rule over every authority, be it on earth and in heaven, and that rule is for us, the church. He rules all things for the benefit of us, his people. Let's unpack that a little bit. We know that Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, 
has always been king in the absolute monarchy of the Trinity. He shares with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the one power and the one authority, and he is together with them the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus was eternally king. And yet as he became man, he did not cease to be that king. Now Luke makes this point very clear for us in the nativity. Uh, When the magi come and they pay homage, they bow down, they give gifts to the infant Jesus, the point is clear that even as an infant, even as he is veiled in our flesh, even as he is born into an impoverished estate, even as he is born into a state of humiliation, the utmost humiliation, Jesus never ceased to be king. He is king by virtue of his divinity. But although that is the case, that Jesus has always been king, there is a sense that the New Testament tells us in in, in that Jesus has become king, and that he has become king in his resurrection and ascension. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says this in Ephesians 1, God raised Christ from the dead. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. God raised Christ and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That is, Christ is enthroned as king, not in Istana Nagara, not in Buckingham Palace, not in the White House, not in the Champs-Élysées, or any other place of human power, authority, and dominion. Christ is enthroned above them all in the heavenly places. Christ rules all as king. And he does not merely rule all earthly dominion, but he also rules all spiritual authority. There is nothing that happens in this world that does not happen according to the governance of Christ. There is no authority that is not under his supreme authority. But the apostle continues. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And then he says, and he put all things under his feet and God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. To the church, which is his body. I think the Apostle is telling us two very important things here. First, as the church, Jesus is our King in a way that is not true for creation generally. He rules us in a way that is distinct from everything else in this world. And that is because Christ is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He has come He has adopted our flesh. He has bought us with his own blood. He has united himself to us permanently and irrevocably. 
as the head of us, his body. He rules us as one who is united to us. And that relationship of union only exists in the light of his saving work, in the light of his death and resurrection for us. It did not exist before. It has come into existence. In times past, Christ was king over us as our creator, but now he is king of us also as our redeemer. That means that for every one of us here, every one of us who professes faith in Christ, Christ has a twofold demand upon our obedience. First, he has that demand as our creator, as the one in whose image we are made. We are obligated to give him all honor, glory, and praise. That's it. But having fallen short of that which we owe him as our creator, having fallen into sin and, and under his condemnation and judgment, in the fullness of time when God sends Christ to take on our flesh to suffer and die for us, that we might be united to him, that we might be saved by him, then also we are obligated to give him all glory, honor, thanksgiving, and praise as our redeemer as well. God has made us, and God has saved us. And we see in the kingship of Christ, in his headship, that, that right as king, as creator, but also now as redeemer. I think, though, Paul is also telling us that in his ascension, that God gave Christ as head over all things for us as head over all things for us. That means that Christ presently governs the universe, has all authority, power, and dominion subjected to him, and he governs it for the benefit of us who are his people. There is no authority over which he does not have control, and there is nothing that he does control that he does not do so for the sake of our eventual good, that we might be saved by him, preserved by him, sanctified by him, and eventually in the fullness of time, glorified by him. And I think as Malaysians, that has quite a significant consequence. You see, in this country, I think that we are inclined to get worried about the direction of politics. We are inclined to be anxious about the result of a general election. Which way is the authority in this country going to go? Is it going to go in the direction that is going to be more hostile to Christians? Uh, and if so, what we need to do is we need to mobilize politically against that. Now, of course, there is a way in which we should be concerned about those things, and there is a way in which it is right to be politically active. But if what we become is anxious that Christ is not in control of all things, and he's not governing all things for our good, and that if bad things happen, it means that Christ is not quite in control, then we have got things profoundly wrong. Whether the situation in this country becomes extremely difficult for Christians, Christ is still king. 
And not only is he king, but he is governing all things for our benefit, individually, that he might see us to glory, and corporately, that as the church, we might show forth his praise. So that's my first point. The ascension of Christ marks the elevation of his kingly rule. So now we must consider the second point, that the ascension of Christ marks the elevation of his priestly ministry. The elevation of Christ marks the elevation of his priestly ministry. And to do this, we will now look at the passage in Hebrews. I'm going to overview Hebrews chapter 6 through 8, but you'll be greatly relieved to learn that to simplify matters, I'm just going to look at the conclusion that the author makes in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. So could you just look at that with me? Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. This is what he says. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. This is the point. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That is, he's talking about Jesus. A minister in the holy places, in the true tents that the Lord set up, not man. Jesus is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, I think as I mentioned before when I preached to you, the word true in these contexts does not stand in contrast to falsehood. So I said that I can describe myself as a true Englishman, and all I mean by that is that I am a typical Englishman. That's what the word true means in that sentence. Here, as in much of the New Testament, the word true carries the meaning of fulfillment and completion or of final reality. So, for example, Jesus is the true king in that he is the fulfillment of everything that is pictured by David. Uh, Jesus is the true prophet in that he is the fulfillment of everything that is pictured by Moses. It doesn't mean that David is is not uh, a true king, that he's a false king. It does not mean that Moses is a false prophet, but rather that they were patterned upon something and pointed to something that was far greater than themselves and that is the person and work of Christ. And so therefore, when this passage says to us that Jesus is a minister in the true tent, and therefore that he is a true priest, and also that he offers a true sacrifice, really what we are invited to do, and what the author does for us, is to compare the work of Christ with the Old Testament picture, and to see how Christ is much better. And the picture that we have before us here is something called the tabernacle. Now, if you've got no idea what the tabernacle is, the tabernacle is basically a tent. But it's an extremely elaborate tent. If you were an Israelite in the Old Testament, you would dwell in a camp with all of the people, and this tent would be right in the center of your camp, and this tent was symbolically the dwelling place of God. So if you like, the tent was, was, a, was a big visual teaching point. And broadly speaking, it would teach you two things just by looking at it. One is that God is present with you as, uh, as Israel. God is present with you. But two, God's presence with you presents a problem. And let me repeat that. 
It's teaching you two things. One, that God is present with you, and two, that that presence creates a problem. The problem is basically this. If God draws near to a sinful people, then how is it that those people are not going to be destroyed by him? If we acknowledge that we are sinful, if we acknowledge that we are guilty, if we acknowledge that we are stained by sin, that we are corrupt, and we simultaneously acknowledge that God is a holy God, unstained by sin, then to come into his presence is a fearful thing. And so, whilst in the Old Testament, God symbolically says that I am coming to dwell with you, I am going to make my presence among you, I will be near with you, simultaneously, he says, but not that near. Don't come too close, because you are still a sinful people, and I am still a holy God. And the way that that would be communicated to you would be through curtains and veils. The tent has got a structure. It's kind of got three uh, dividing partitions, and each one is separated by a barrier. And each barrier, each veil, effectively says, you can't come in. You can get close, but not that close. There is one exception to that. One man, once a year, would be able to go right into the middle of that tent, right into the center, right into the presence of God, into his throne room. And he would go there with one reason, and one reason alone, to represent the people and to make atonement for their sin, to cleanse them of their sin, to purify them of their sin, to take away God's anger against their sin. And the person who did that was the high priest. And the way he did that was basically twofold. I'm coming towards the end, okay? So this is the two basic things that he does. Number one, outside the tent, he would slaughter an animal. The blood of that animal takes the place of the blood of the Israelites because God demands that death be meted out upon people who are sinful. And so the animal takes the place of the people of Israel. That's the first component, the sacrifice. The second component to the priest's work is that he then takes the blood of that sacrifice and he carries it through the curtains into the most holy place of God, and there he presents the blood in the throne room of God. And essentially what he's doing is he is saying that this blood that has been shed is the objective basis for the forgiveness of sins, for the atonement of the people, for their cleansing. The animal has died, and this is the basis now for the atonement of Israel. Now, of course, we know that the blood of bulls and goats can, cannot atone for our sins, and the author of Hebrews makes exactly the same point. But all of this, remember, is just a picture. Because in the fullness of time, Christ, who is the true priest, died outside of God's heavenly throne room, on a grotty cross outside of Jerusalem. And there he offered up his one full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for sin. 
And then in his resurrection, and most importantly, in his ascension, what he does is he takes that sacrifice that he had made and he brings it right into the presence of God. And there he presents it as the objective basis for our purification, for our forgiveness. So just as if you were in Israel and you saw your priest going behind the veil, disappearing from view, carrying the blood of the sacrifice, you would not despair. But actually, you would be aware that what was going on was integral to your salvation. That the blood was being carried there to make purification for you. And in the same way as Jesus offered up himself to sacrifice on a cross, he has to present that sacrifice in the true tent, in the heavenly places before God. He has to stand there eternally with his sacrifice that we might be accounted righteous before God. So I asked in, in the beginning, in, in what sense does, does Christ ascending into heaven give us any assurance? In, in what sense does it give us hope? In what sense does it provide us with comfort? Well, if we understand what it is that Christ has done, then in no way does it detract from our comfort, but it adds to it. For we know that the purpose that Christ has gone is to go and stand there with the wounds of his cross that he might present that sacrifice to his father and make all of the legitimate demands that that sacrifice has to make. That we might be saved on the basis of his death. So what assurance do we have in, in the ascension of Christ? That he now reigns in heaven as our king as the one to whom we are united, the one who rules all authority in heaven and earth for the benefit of us, the church. And we know that the fact that he stands there, the man who is perfect in holiness, carrying with him the scars of his cross and of his sacrifice is the one assurance that one day we too will be glorified with him in the presence of God, holy and perfectly pleasing to him. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that though we are sinful, in the fullness of time you sent your son to be born of a woman, born under the law, and facing the penalty of the law in our place, that his blood was shed when it should have been ours, that he was our substitute. And we thank you, Father, that uh, his sacrifice is accepted by you fully and completely. And this is shown in the fact that you raised him from the dead and you have glorified him in your presence through his mighty ascension. We thank you that you have granted him all rule and authority in heaven and on earth and that he rules for the benefit of us, his people. And we give you greater thanks that as he stands there uh, in your presence, we have the full assurance that one day we too will be glorified with him in your presence forever. And we thank you, Father, for the purification of our sins that you have made for us in him. We pray that you'd help us to submit to his rule all the more. And we ask this for the greater glory of your holy name. Amen. Please stand and we will say together the words of the Apostles' Creed.
be found on page 34 of the yellow booklet. We say together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please kneel or be seated for our time of prayer. Lord, have mercy upon us. Amen. 